The following program is a special presentation of the Big Ten Network, produced in association with the University of Iowa. Hi, I'm Keisha Lynn. Welcome to Conversations from the Iowa Writers' Workshop. With his first novel, Iowa Writers' Workshop graduate Stephen Lovely chose to take on the subject of hearts, both literal and figurative. Irreplaceable is a deeply sensitive, sometimes humorous, and ultimately very emotional story of two families struggling to move forward after a terrible tragedy brings them together. Publishers Weekly says that Lovely's delicate handling of loaded material, attention to detail, and depth of character make this book a standout. Stephen Lovely is director of the Iowa Young Writers Studio here in Iowa City. Stephen, nice to meet you. Nice to, nice to meet you, nice too. Nice to thanks, see you, I should say. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, because yeah, we, we know great. each other. That's um, true. This book is about organ donation and mm -hmm. organ transplants and how families are affected by it. And I wanted to read the dedication. It said, the book is dedicated to the family whose decision to donate their boy's organs inspired this book. Can you talk about that story? Yes. Um, when I got out of the writer's workshop years and years ago, um, I was kind of at a low point as far as my writing went. I, was, I knew I wanted to stay in Iowa City. I knew I wanted to try to keep writing, but um, I just, you know, I was sort of, I wasn't flying. I was kind of just dropped out of the workshop and landed on the ground and had to, to earn a living. So um, I took a job at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics right here in Iowa City, and I was working as a unit clerk, um, which means basically that I was back, sort of backing up the nurses and doctors um, on the pediatric intensive care unit. So the, the patients were all kids, and I was answering the phone and doing all these administrative tasks. And, um, and one night, um, this boy was admitted to the unit who had been killed um, in a car accident. Um, so it was this terrible event. Um, he was brain dead, um, and his parents uh, made the decision to donate his organs, um, which meant that, among other things, his parents, who could have ordinarily maybe gotten the whole sort of process of, of that evening over with a little more early and, and sort of managed to go home and sort of start their grieving or, or whatever, they, they were really forced to stick around and see their son, you know, not only through his, his death, but through this longer process of, of get, preparing him to donate his organs. Um, so that boy, um, I remember that, that boy very vividly, and I remember the evening very vividly, and I remember being in the background during that whole process. And that's when I that, that night is actually when I sort of came up with the idea for the book and started thinking about all the relationships that might be formed, you know, with this donation. But um, I, I ultimately decided to, to donate the book to him because he um, and his family because they, they inspired it, really. Um. It's interesting. You, you, this book is told from multiple points of view, and right. you, again, you take Alex, who is the main character. And one thing that I found very interesting, and this is that old adage that we tell our students about: you, you take your character, and you constantly visit trouble upon them. Right. You know, he's trying to move on with his life, and then this this other person kind of comes in at an unexpected, unexpected, in an unexpected, in an odd way. Let's put it yeah, that way. It's yeah. really through the mother-in-law, but he, I, I, I just took away from it the sense that he's struggling so hard to keep it together. And I was wondering, was his the first voice that came to you when you wrote this? Definitely, yeah. Alex was. Um, when I started writing the book, I, I had the sense of a main character who's 
wife would be killed and her heart would be transplanted to another woman who lived in a different city. Um, but but I had no idea at the beginning that it was gonna that it was gonna be told from multiple points of view. So I started writing about Alex, and I think as I went on, I just realized that there were these other obviously there were these other relationships, and then there were these other characters. And I think um, in typical fashion, I think a lot of writers run into this. They start to realize that these other characters um, start to sort of speak up and become interesting, and 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 eventually at some point sort of merit a point of view of their own. Um, and so Bernice and Janet and, um, and Jasper, another character, um, all of them at some point sort of acquired a critical mass and, and wanted to be sort of inhabited and have their own revolving points of view. And um, I think ultimately looking back on it, I couldn't have told the story from one point of view. So, um, and, 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 and you know, writing this book was really a long process of trying to figure out, um, I mean, I work really slowly. When I started this novel, I really had no idea how to write a novel or what would be involved, and so I was really feeling my way along, as I think most first novelists and you know, probably second and third novelists are doing. <laughs> right, so uh, I was in the dark, you know, and, um, and, and trying to figure these things out. So I, I didn't intend for it originally to be four points of view. Sure. Well, then, uh, it's interesting that Isabel, who is really the center of this book, was her heart that's the center, opens the book. We yeah. get her point of view, but that's it. Was that a conscious decision to kind of bring her? She's mostly in the background. She kind of speaks up in different parts, yeah. but for the most part, she's she's they're talking around her. Yeah, she was tough to do because I, I definitely wanted Isabel to be have a presence in the book and to be a character um, and to have some kind of weight or substance because I sort of thought, well, the reader the reader doesn't want to read a whole book about people grieving about this woman without caring in some way about the woman. Um, but it was tricky too because when I first started working on, when I first did Isabel through the book, I think I gave her too much presence and I think um, I sent the book to Margot Livesey who was one of my teachers at Iowa in the workshop and she read it through and one of the things that bothered her was that she just was kind of turned off by Isabel. She was like, it's, it's, it's a little sad, there's too much of her, I get tired of her. Um, so I had to kind of pull her back and try to achieve this balance between giving her substance and a presence without sort of hitting the reader over the head with her all the time to the point where the reader would be like, you know, I don't care if she's dead, you know. Exactly. And in fact, there was a review, I forget which one who reviewed it, but they talk about how this could have been much more melodramatic than it was. And one of the gifts of this novel is that you were able to make these people sympathetic, all of them, including, yeah. as it turns out, Jasper. And yes, talk, yeah. talk about Jasper. Well, Jasper is the guy who, uh, first of all, one of the things that appealed to me about this book was, you know, when I was working at the hospital and this kid was there donating his organs and I started to think about all the relationships that would be created by an organ donation. Um, you know, obviously there's the recipient of the heart who's going to maybe have some guilt and be interested in getting in touch with the donor family. And then, um, then there, there's Alex, the husband of the donor, Bernice, the mother of the donor, and those two are both divided about whether they want to have contact with the recipient family. So then that was all sort of interesting, but then when I started to think about, well, there's a guy somewhere out there who, who has either accidentally or recklessly killed the donor, and, and you know, in my personal case, it was this kid, someone had killed him, and in the book, it's, it's this guy named Jasper who accidentally kills Isabel, or, or you know, that's a question as to how accidental it is. Right. But um, I thought that if you could put, if you could get into his head and try to think about how he might view this whole sort of sequence of events involving the donated organ, um, that would make it sort of much more interesting. Like I almost feel like the book, it, it, the book's probably been done in some ways bef before, but when you throw Jasper in, um, 
I think it makes it much more interesting because ultimately what he thinks is um, he, he believes that in some way he's, he feels terrible about having killed Isabel, but he also feels that by killing Isabel, um, once he realizes that organs have been donated, he begins to think that he had a role in saving the recipient of her heart, this woman Janet, and maybe other people as well. So, um, so he begins to sort of stalk Alex and Bernice and try to befriend them with sort of a long-term calculated idea of tracking down the donor and maybe ultimately confronting that person and trying to sort of get something out of it or get his due or somehow be absolved or rewarded or whatever. Because he too um, is trying to deal with what happened. Everybody in this book is trying to deal with the death of this woman. Yeah, and yeah. I just thought that was a really gutsy move for you to do, to put oh, his thanks. voice in there. Oh, because I don't know if people would have actually been able to do that. Was he a challenge to write oh, yeah. from that perspective? He was, the, he was the toughest character to write, definitely. Yeah, and the, the reason is that at the beginning, I really had this idea that he would be sympathetic and kind of a decent person who, you know, like all of us, we're driving along in our cars. Maybe we kind of, our attention wanders for a minute. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're fortunate in every one of those minutes that we don't hit someone. Um, but I thought, okay, well, here's a guy, maybe he's not so fortunate. He, his attention wanders for a minute and he kills someone. And then he, he feel, figures out that organs have been donated. And then he wants to sort of become involved in this or see sort of where it's led. But um, a decent sort of, I began to realize that a decent, sensitive person with a good sense of social boundaries and other people's privacy would never insinuate himself into the lives of the donor family as much as he does. I mean, he's very assertive and relentless and uh, completely inappropriate <laughs> on, in, on, many, uh, on many levels. So I had to totally recalibrate him and, and try to make him um, much more narcissistic and insensitive, a little sort of heedless of social boundaries. Um, so that he would sort of, uh, for my own plot needs, and also just to make the story more interesting, be the kind of person who would insinuate himself and would be relentless and even aggressive and would, and would track down the, the donor and, and try to um, just insert himself into their lives, basically. Jasper, as crazy as he is, I feel has, um, you know, he, he, he has some points. I mean, he is ultimately kind of responsible for for this accident, and the accident is responsible for the donation, which is responsible for saving the recipient's life. So he's not completely off base when he wants sort of some kind of credit. You and I know each other because we're both working with programs involving right, high school age writers. Right, right. And I've often said that if I had had someone to kind of hold my hand when I was 16 and tell me that it's okay yeah, <laughs> to yeah. be a writer, my life might have been completely different. Right. What kinds of things do you see coming out of the studio in terms of like when students are done with it or when they're in the middle of participating? What kinds of experiences do they do they have? Um, different kinds. I mean, I think one of the things that's most valuable is, I mean, sometimes I think the best thing about this program, the really thing, the thing that makes it viable and valuable is it just brings the kids together. So they're all kids who are, they're young, they're in the first sort of blush of love with books, with reading, with writing. Um, maybe they have a few other kids at their high school who are like that. Maybe they don't. Um, so when these kids all get together, it's like they've discovered the tribe. I mean, they sort of, they, they glom onto each other. They just become swept up in this tornado of, of enthusiasm for all things books. And, uh, and you know, by the end of the two weeks, it's, it's almost impossible to, to pry them apart and get them to go home. Um, so, so they meet other writers, which is a great thing. And, and in this day and age, they can all continue to stay in touch. So they have this, you know, it's possible that you could come to the Iowa Young Writers Studio at the age of 15 and meet another writer who will read your work 
for the rest of your life, um, which I think is a, is, a, is a great thing to offer a young writer. Um, or, t or maybe they meet a teacher who, who they'll continue to work with. Um, but then I think in their own work, they make huge steps. I mean, the one thing about high school writers is they, uh, they seem to be able to accomplish in like an hour what it would take, uh, you know, we adults like a right. week to do. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> they'll go into a computer lab and they'll write a 20-page short story in an hour and right. it'll be really good. Yeah. And then the next day they'll workshop it and the next night they'll revise it and three days later they'll produce a story that's 500 times better than the first version. Right. You know, that would take us probably six months to do. But they're working at such a pace, they're progressing and developing at a really advanced pace. Um, and I think having teachers and guidance, um, you know, really high quality teachers and workshop graduates is, is a huge uh, advantage for them. A lot of people don't really understand. I, I thought people understood what it meant to be in a writer's workshop, but I'm finding that some people are not quite sure what that means. So I want you to talk a little bit about what it, a workshop entails. Um, this is the case for the high school students in your program, Iowa Young Writers Studio, but also for those of us who have been in the writer's workshop. Right, right. Well, the standard format for a writer's workshop is you have a teacher, you have 10 or 15 students, and usually it's about two hours long, and you will, the purpose of the workshop is to read the work of the, the person whose work is being considered that day. Everyone in the class reads it, the teacher reads it, and, uh, and then, you know, during that hour, that portion of the class dedicated to that story, um, you know, the author is in the room, but it's the rest of the students and the teacher who discuss the work, the story, um, you know, discuss its, its, its merits, its faults, its flaws, um, its, its, uh, the things it's achieved, the thing it's, things it's failed to achieve. Um, the author is generally quiet and not allowed to speak. Um, and then at the end of that period, um, usually what also happens is the teacher will sort of sum up um, maybe give his or her own sort of particular feelings about the story, and then all of the students will will hand a version of the manuscript back to the author with all their comments on it, and often with a lot of line edits. So the author comes away from this workshop with, you know, ten or fifteen copies of of their story that have been completely worked through, um, and also all of the comments, you know, the oral comments from from the teacher and the other students. And you know, the, the, the what has to, what has to happen to make it work is that um, the other students in the class it helps if they are also you know writers themselves, good writers good readers, um, generous readers, and, and good critics in the sense that they know how to read something and not just rip it down, but sort of talk about what its problems are, and then spend the time and the energy trying to formulate some kind of constructive response and also, um, and also write that response for the author. So um, in my experience, my first workshops were um, a little difficult and kind of schizophrenic because I I, I remember putting up my first story, and I was very nervous about how it would be received. And, um, and, and writing is such a personal thing that when you go into this room where 10 other people have just read your work, it's kind of like, it's like being naked in front of a group of people who all have knives or something, exactly. and they're all just waiting to get a piece of you. Um, so I was nervous, and, and, uh, it, and some people really liked the work, and other people had a lot of problems with the work. And I, I came away feeling a little confused, and ultimately it was my workshop teacher, Deborah Eisenberg, who had to sort of help me sort it out. And um, I think another thing, if, you, if you're an author in a workshop, one of the things you really have to learn how to do 
is um, over time kind of learn which people in the workshop are kind of in tune with your objectives or with your sensibility as a writer. I mean, no one's ever, ever you're never gonna have a unanimous you know, support for your work, but you can usually find people who understand what you're trying to do, and then you can learn to weight their comments a little more heavily than, than the people who you, know, you may feel or prefer a different kind of fiction or a different, uh, they have a different sensibility. When you begin to apply for programs and yeah. you hear about Iowa, the Iowa Writers Workshop, the mystique that comes around it. But once you get here, yeah. then then you find the work. Can you talk? I know you mentioned Margot Livesey was one of your yeah. teachers. Um, can you talk about one of your like seminal experiences while sure. you were a student? Yeah, you know, probably my most seminal experience was right when I got here. Um, I got here. I was really young. I was 23. Um, I was writing. Um, I was a very young writer. I think both in terms of sort of my my artistic maturity and my emotional maturity, like I was a young person. And writing for me was all about language and imagery and sort of pumping out this kind of, this thing that I felt inside myself into language. And um, so I remember I came to Iowa with a story that was very dense and overblown and full of, you know, vivid imagery. And, um, and I, I immediately met three or four older writers who were a year above me, and they all really liked it. They were, they were like, oh, it's so, you know, the writing is so vivid. And I think they, they just thought it was cool that I was writing sort of in a very flamboyant style. Um, so I thought, I'm great, you know, yeah. this is great. <laughs> so I got to workshop, and, um, and there were this whole, there was a whole other cadre of people who who were saying, you know, wait a minute, this is, it's totally impenetrable, it's unreadable, um, there's, no, there's no meaning, the story's not about anything. Um, and, and so, and, and yet my friends, the people I really admired, you know, I just met, who all loved it, they were kind of, you know, saying, well, no, no, it's really, it's really flam you know, wonderful. Um, so it took me a little time to sort of figure out which, which of those groups sort of was right. And, um, and the person who helped me do it was really Deborah Eisenberg, who's my first teacher. And I remember my first conference with her, um, she read, she, it was about the same story. And I remember I went into this little office and sat down with her. And Deborah is, um, you know, she, she's wonderful. And the, the, one, the one thing I remember from back then was the way she handled manuscripts. She would handle like each, she would turn the pages of your manuscript like it was just like some kind of like it might be toxic or no. fragile, and either it was because it was so good, it was so perfect, it might be damaged, or it was just so sort of toxic and bad. That, oh my but it was just this really, it was sort of great to watch her handle these pages, and she, so she was handling mine in this little office, and she didn't talk for a long time, and I thought she was going to just say, you know, Stephen, your language, it's incandescent, and you know, it's wonderful, and what she said was, she just said, look, you know, I don't think we can even, she, she said, let's start with the first sentence, let's talk about the first sentence, and then there was this long pause, and she said, I don't even think we can talk about the first sentence. She said, this is, I can't, I have no idea what this first sentence is, is saying. Um, it's impenetrable, it's, it's completely out of control, um, and you need to go back with this first sentence and rewrite it and try to make it say what you want it to say. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was completely stripped down, and, um, and that was probably the best thing that happened to me. And I know people who've, who read that same story were, you know, I think they, they thought, here's a really young, immature sort of writer who has a lot of um, energy and sort of language enthusiasm, but basically just needs to go to sleep for seven or 10 years and grow up, and then, you know, he'll, he'll be better. I wanted to make sure I... Um
got this in about the Iowa Young Writers Studio. Can you talk about that program and what you do for it? Yeah, the Iowa Young Writers Studio is um, it's a summer residential creative writing program for high school students here at the University of Iowa. Um, every year, about 400 uh, writers, uh, high school-aged writers from all over the country um, apply with writing samples. And we, we judge, uh, we admit them solely on the basis of the writing sample. Uh, so the students who end up coming here, we, we, we have two sessions in the summer, 60 students for each session. And those 120 students are magnificent writers who come from all over the country. Um, they study fiction, poetry, and creative writing with uh, writers who are usually just a little older than themselves, graduates of the, of the Iowa Writers Workshop and of other writing programs at the University of Iowa. Um, and so they're taking classes during the day, they're going to readings at night, and they're able to sort of completely experience the, uh, the Iowa City literary uh, thing um, in, in a brief uh, two weeks, and uh, it's it's. I've been the director of the program for just a couple of years, but it's just been magnificent, and it's uh, it completely every year when I read all these applications, it completely renews my faith in in the future of literature. I mean, there's so many kids out there who are writing, and there's so many kids who are good, um, and they're empathetic, and they're interesting, and they're thinking about all kinds of different things, and uh, it just completely recharges me and makes me believe. It's wonderful. Yeah. Stephen Lovely, it's been great talking to you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Here is Stephen Lovely's first book, Irreplaceable. We look forward to many more from him in the years to come. I'm Keisha Lynn. Thank you for joining us on Conversations from the Iowa Writers Workshop. The preceding program was produced by the University of Iowa in association with the Big Ten Network.